totality, there is witness, and there is truth, and people are responding in droves. And that is the type of gospel message that we must preach today, one that desperately believes in the resurrection of Christ. It is a central piece to the gospel, and yet we leave it over and over, and it's going to be a central piece to the remaining part of Peter's sermon as he preaches to a crowd who doesn't receive it as well as we've seen so far. Because everyone up to this point has been really excited about the good news of Jesus. Today, we begin to take a turn, the book of Acts, which leads us towards years and years and years of persecution. Okay. Now, Will they bend? Will they break? Will they fall off? Or will they continue to preach? Who will they obey? That's what we get to look at today. So turn again, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, see, Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, right? So Sadducees, see, they were sad, you see. Be- it's like the oldest, cheesiest Bible joke ever. Right? Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So when they begin to see this band of people saying, hey, that guy that, that you guys killed, he's alive again. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, 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 wait. That, that can't be true because that impedes upon my worldview, my life, everything, my foundation I've built my life upon. And so they are feeling some pressure. Verse 3, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And the Sanhedrin, the council, they would meet in the morning. So verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of them, a number of the men came to about 5,000. This is why we say about 10,000. Just the men were about 5,000, not including women and children. So we just estimate double that number, like 10,000 people. So there are people that are hearing the gospel and saying, I'm in. That is fantastic. But there's some people that hear the gospel and they begin to feel the pressure of the fact that the gospel is going to push against our own ideologies. And the gospel is going to push against our own worldviews. And, and believe me, it's going to push against your own actions as well. And so when the Sadducees are hearing all this stuff, they're like, whoa, actually no, how do we shut this down? Because this, the implications of this are not just individual to me, but they have individuals in my power structure, in the way that we run things. Man, 10,000 people, they used to listen to us, and now they're listening to a guy who's supposed to be dead. So you can understand the fear that exists. So they take these men who are doing nothing but good, they took a crippled guy and made him walk again, and yet now they're throwing them in prison to bring them before the council the next morning. So I want to talk just a moment about this idea that the gospel is foolishness to the world. The gospel is, is crazy, and I understand that because I lived in that reality for, for honestly, the first, well, I'm not, see, I'm 32, so more than the first half of my life, I'm 33, that's weird, um, <laughs> for more than the first half of my life, I thought this stuff was crazy. Like, I would show up to these moments, and, and hear me, maybe some of you here this morning are that. You're just like, this is just, this is just foolish, man. Like, you actually believe that a guy came back to life, somehow an angel came out, rolled away a stone, or he used supernatural power, and then he floated to heaven, and he told a bunch of people, I'm going to empower you with the power of my Holy Spirit. Do you think that's real? Yeah. Like, this is crazy stuff, but it's true. Like, that's, that's the difficult thing I get that even as Christians we have to wrestle with. is like, man, this stuff is wild. But it's true. And so because it's foolishness, I think 
when we look across unbelief across our culture, even I think in our own hearts, when we live in unbelief of certain things, we don't do a really good job of just letting stuff sit, right? Like, so if someone lines up different from you, it's hard to bite your tongue, right? Usually it's let me go on the offensive and I can discredit what you think. And so oftentimes unbelief leads towards persecution. So this is what we see here throughout the book of Acts as we move forward is unbelief leads to constant and consistent persecution of the early church. Now the church has to decide, hey, things aren't going as well as they were before. People aren't just getting saved and everyone's not all happy. So what do we do now? Now, the people that I think in our minds, we often think these are the people that are frustrated with us. These are the people that are angry. We often think it's the non-religious, right? So it's the atheist, and it's the agnostic, and it's the somewhere in between. It's the skeptic. It's the questioner. It's whatever. Now, I'm not saying that's not true, but it's not always and only them. Even in this text, we'll see that very same thing. And so as we talk through persecution, and we're not going to spend a ton of time on it today because it's coming throughout the book, and we will visit it far more often, okay? What I will say is that persecution can come from all sorts of angles and all sorts of motives and all sorts of people. From the irreligious, I think it comes for a couple of reasons. One, because the reality is, is that some of the stuff that our Bible says that we believe as, as Bible, gospel-preaching Christians, man, that offends some people because they think that's just crazy, right? You don't tell me how to live my life type of stuff, so I get that. But I think we're fools if, as a church we don't take the time to acknowledge that maybe, just maybe, some of the irreligious folk in our communities, at our jobs, in the schools and classes that we attend, wherever we may be, in the places we play and recreate, that the reasons why they struggle with this and this is foolishness because they haven't seen it lived out all that well. That, that they, they kind of said, well, okay, so you know what? And honestly, in our culture, a lot of people know what some of this stuff says, right, in the Word. They're like, okay, I think it's kind of like supposed to live in love or something. And then they look upon the general population of Christianity, and it's difficult because in our country you have still, I think it's 86% of the country claiming Christianity as their religion, which is just really 86%. Wow. So... I think they look upon the church and they have to just be asked questions like, is that really what Jesus is about? And I think we need to be honest and, and say we're sorry. And honestly, if you're here and there have been times where you've looked upon the church and that's what has pushed you away, not because of what the Bible has said, but because of something I've said or I've acted or someone around you or some, listen, we're sorry. Like we are jacked up too. We just have to admit it. Like the world is not looking for perfection. They're looking for honesty. And so, okay, just let it out. Like, I'm jacked up. Like, don't act, I mean, you don't have to. <laughs> but we're all kind of a mess, and that's the whole point of the gospel. If you are dialed in, and you are good, and you're, you're just the best, you don't need Jesus, and you will functionally push him out of your life. But if you are desperate, and you realize the need for a savior, you will strive for him, pursue him, cling to him, and experience him. And then the world will say, man, all right, that makes some sense to me. Now, I think that's the religious. I think we're, we're going to see in this text is that the religious can get pretty upset too. People that are supposed to be within the fold. And the infighting that exists within the church is something that we have to also acknowledge and say, and that doesn't make a ton of sense. Now, hear me very clearly. I am as convicted about things in my life as anyone you will ever meet. Ask my wife. 
I have opinions on absolutely everything. Like, I just do. Like, I'm like, yeah, like that curtain is one inch too long, right? Like, that, that is the way my brain works. And I have to intentionally turn it off because I don't want to be a jerk, right? Like, I still want to have a wife, and so I don't do that. There are things, and I'm not trying to call your convictions into question. You should be convicted. You should pursue truth. You should study. You should learn. And you should dialogue. But you should do all of those things. Not just say, ah, well, this is who I am. You're that. And so there is no, there is no bridge that we can form here. And unfortunately, we see that throughout the church. And one of the things that really pains me is even as we try and say, okay, we're going to try and seek the welfare and the prosperity and the care of this city of Flagstaff. And we've gone out and tried to partner with certain churches that some would say, well, they don't actually believe exactly as you believe. But on the core stuff we'd say they do, man, have I gotten a lot of emails. And I don't get it. Because I'm not trying to win anyone to reform theology. I'm not trying to win anyone to this specific ideology, but I am trying to win people to Jesus. And so are a lot of other churches in our city. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have bad stuff. They got bad stuff, and guess what? So do I, and so do we. And that's okay, because that's what the gospel is for us. It's the sufficiency, and we're going to see that in point number two. Now, before we get there, the last thing I'll say is that the reason why this is foolishness is people because nobody likes being called out. Nobody likes to acknowledge their sin, at least not publicly and not before people. So my little boy, Finley, he's a rock star. Like, he's just the coolest kid. Um, but when he gets a lot of energy going, uh, and anyone who's got maybe a little boy or maybe a little girl, I don't know, uh, but if, he, if he's two and a half and so he's all pent up and we say, hey, Finley, no, you can't do that. That dude comes out swinging. Like he's, and he'll just start smacking stuff. He'll hit the wall. He'll hit himself in the head. He'll aim for me. I duck, get him in the throat. Like it's just, I'm just kidding. I don't. Actually, I shouldn't have joked about that. I don't hit my child. Uh, seriously, I don't. Just very clear. Um, but. He'll, he'll swing, and that's just, listen, he's, he doesn't know what to do in those moments. Like, he just, I'm angry, right? And so here's what happens the other day. He, uh, well, like, Finley, hey, you can't do that. We'll sit down, we'll talk, put him in timeout, have him work through it, that whole deal. And he'll go, and he'll just be so just rebellious the whole time. Like, I didn't do that, and uh, okay, whatever. So anyway, the other night, he's in his crib, and, uh, and, and um, we hear him disciplining his stuffed animal, Okay? <laughs> So he has this little brown bear, which he has aptly named Little Bear, okay? Um, and then he has this little blue bear, which he's aptly named Blue Bear, okay? And so Little Bear somehow, like, we'll put him down to sleep, and he'll spend the next 30 minutes to an hour just living life. <laughs> like, he's, he's just like, finally, the parents are gone, you know? And so he's having tea parties, he's scaling mountains, he's flying planes, like, he's just doing all this stuff. And so he, at some point in this altercation, Little Bear smacked Blue Bear, Okay? Like, no joke. And so my son takes Little Bear and says no and puts Little Bear in timeout in the corner of his crib, right? And he's like, you got to sit there. You got to think about this, right? Like, we don't hit, you know? That's, and, and here, honestly, like, I'm thinking to myself, like, all right, he would, in no way in that moment is he going to think, yeah, I'm just going to acknowledge that I did something bad, you know? 
Like, I, I, I did something, but I don't want anyone to know. So even at two and a half, this self-preservation exists to say, no, I didn't do that. Or, no, that's not that big a deal. Or, don't discipline me. Or, I'm not wrong, et cetera, et cetera. But you get them behind closed doors and there's conviction. And you see it because he's disciplining his stuffed animal, right? <laughs> and I think, man, I think humanity works very similarly. Think about the last fight you had with your spouse. And I know none of you fight, right? The last fight you had with your spouse, man, in the moment, you will not admit you're wrong, right? Like, you, you'll just, man, no, that, that was you. And then, you know what, let's, let's, re, let's remember correctly, you said this, so then I got angry, Right? Well, you said this, and then you said it this way, and then I saw your right eye went up like this, and then you did that thing with your hand, and so then I knew that this is what you meant, right? And so defend to the teeth, but then honestly, every time this happens with Verity and I, I then go upstairs, and I sit to myself, and I think, I'm an idiot. Like, I'm a, I'm a total bonehead, and I'm so off right now, because I'm the problem, <laughs> It's, it's my sin, it's my brokenness, my pride, my whatever it is that continues to perpetuate this thing. It's behind closed doors. And so here's what I think. The gospel that we preach is going to look like foolishness, and people will speak about it as if it's foolishness, but I guarantee you the work of God is doing stuff internally you cannot see, so do not be discouraged. Preach the gospel. I think they knew this. I think the early church said, okay, I know you're going to hate us, and I know you're going to lob persecution, and you're do the whole thing, but I know the sovereign God of the universe who just rose from the dead is going to do work I cannot see. And so let me preach. So the gospel is sufficient, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation here. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Just Jesus. Now, so here's the context. They're saying, all right, we're going to... Now, this is not new. This is not new for the temple elite. This is not new for Caiaphas and Annas. If that's ringing a bell, these guys were part of the trial of Christ that sent him to his death. And so I imagine, even as Peter's preaching, he's like, listen, guys, I, I remember. I was there. Like, when he says, you crucified him, he's literally looking at them and saying, it was you. Like, you did this. And guess what? He's alive. And it's his power that brought this crippled man to walk again. And so they continue to inspect him. And again, they do this often. How can we trip up Jesus when he was alive? He's alive again, but you know what I mean. And then how can we trip up his people 
now? How do we discredit their message? How do we remove this? And then Peter comes in and preaches this incredible gospel moment in this beautiful answer. Now, verse 12 is one of the most oft-quoted verses. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved except for the name of Jesus Christ. Now, we use the term gospel here in this room or whatever room all the time. And we think the gospel has to be central to your life. It has to be central to absolutely everything. But I know I can oftentimes just assume that we all know what that means. Okay? And that's just not true. And even as Christians, I think we even more so assume, well, we know what that means. And I don't know if that's true either. Because I think it's something that we constantly need to repeat to ourselves and say, this is what we're talking about. Because it is the gospel being sufficient that allows these guys to stand before their persecutors and say, this is what Christ has done, you need to believe it. That allows them to speak with such boldness and say, you're the one who did this but Jesus. So I want to take a moment and just reiterate for us, as I think Peter does for Caiaphas and the elders here, just what the gospel is. You see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? He made, he thought to himself, what do I want this to look like? And he just begins to speak, and things just begin to pop up, bam, bam, bam. And then at the end of his creation time, he, he's like, you know, I'm going I'm to make some people so he makes Adam and he makes Eve, and things are perfect. Now, for us, I get, I, get, I get it in this moment, it's impossible for us to fully understand what that place looked like because it was perfect and we live in a broken creation. But do your best. It was perfect, no sin, no brokenness, no pain, no blemish, no fracture, etc. It was perfect. And then an act of disobedience per Genesis chapter 3, man goes against God and says, I got this. I don't want you. I want this. I don't trust you. I trust myself. And they move this direction away from God and send in that act of disobedience, this thing, this force, this power we call sin enters in the world and just corrupts it all. And here's the reality that since that day that we see in Genesis chapter 3, Mankind, you and I, and all of humanity, whether they believe it or not, are clawing their way back to him. Like they're trying to figure out, how do I return back to what I was meant for? Now, I don't think that the average non-Christian, I don't even know if the average Christian would quantify it as such. But that's what we're doing. Because we long for what? We long for community. We long for presence. We long for love, hope, care, affection. And so then we chase the things of this world that we think are going to give it to us, and then they always seem to come up just a bit short. Since the beginning of time, after Genesis 3, mankind has tried to find their way back to God, and it hasn't worked. So the good news, and good news only comes usually when it's bad, right? So things are bad, so then good news comes in to redeem it. And the good news, the gospel story is that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, decided, you know what? That's right, they can't do it, so I will do it for them. And so this God comes down into a manger. We just celebrate it during Christmas. Born in Nazareth, come in Bethlehem, comes out prophecy after prophecy after prophecy throughout the Old Testament saying, this guy is coming. And it's not just in verses, it's in every book and story throughout your entire Bible, all point to Jesus. 
one of the stories that we all know, and maybe you're familiar with this idea, but I'll say it because I think it's so helpful even for my own heart to remember as I read through the Bible. That the story of David and Goliath is not about you, right? Like, it's just not. Like, you were, if you grew up in church and you did youth group, you were taught, hey, you're David, or you should be David, and you need to go slay your Goliath, right? Whatever that big sin is in your life, whatever that thing that you need to kill and crush and have victory over, that's you. So be David, be brave, get after it. That is not the purpose of David and Goliath. The purpose of David and Goliath is to show you and tell you and I and all of humanity, you and I are the cowards that sit on the bank of the battle and say, someone please do this for us because I don't want to go fight. We're the people that stand and say, man, what what am I, I, I'm not going to go fight that guy. And so we'll stand. And then what God does is he raises up a shepherd that comes and wins the battle on your behalf And then his victory is imparted to you. You didn't win that battle. Jesus won that battle. And then his victory, his righteousness, his goodness is given to you through the cross and the resurrection. So every story throughout scripture, including every prophecy, says there's a guy coming. He's going to be God in the flesh. And man, he wants to save you. He wants to know you. He wants to be with you. He wants you to stop clawing back and just embrace him. To call upon the name of Jesus with which no one else under any other name can be saved. That's the gospel. That his perfection in his life would be given to you. That his victory would be given to you. And that in his victory over death, you too and I would have new life now and forever. That's the gospel. So as Peter's preaching to Caiaphas and to Annas and to John and the whole crew, and they're all listening, that's what he's talking about. He's like, listen, you killed the guy who came to redeem and save you, the guy that you had been looking for, but you missed him. But you missed him. Now, my boy Finn, and he's coming up twice in this sermon, which I think goes against Verity and I's rule, but he's just awesome. So... All day long, you know, so Verity, I, I get to watch Finn a couple days a week. Verity's home with him a few days during the week. Um, and on the days that Verity's watching him, she'll, she'll text me, hey, Finn keeps asking for you. And he's like, where's daddy? Is daddy coming home? When's daddy going to be here? Daddy's the best. Daddy's handsome. Daddy's awesome. Daddy's the best at soccer. You know, just on, you know, just common opinion type stuff. And, um, and he'll just be longing to be with his dad, right? And then I'll come home and I'll, I'll come, you know, the, the, the garage door will go up or whatever. And he hears it and he just runs to the door, you know. And I open it and what is the first words I hear? Daddy! Right? And he comes and he hugs my leg and it's just, it's honestly, it's just the best moment I get every day. And I think about my son's heart and his desire to be with his father. And God, I want that. I pray for that, to crave Jesus like that, to crave his presence, and to go a step further. I'll come home, and now, you know, he's learning stuff. He's got, he has all these toys he plays with in our living room. One of them is a tool set, and back when we got on this tool set, there's a handful of things you can do on this workbench that he didn't know how to do yet, 
And so, Daddy! And then he grabs my hands, and we walk over to the tool set, and he's like pointing, and he's trying to figure, he's like, teach me how to do this. And in that moment, I'm like, dang, this, this, is, this is the way I long for my heart to desire God. I long for me to believe that the gospel is truly sufficient, that I don't need to chase after other things. What I need to chase after is Jesus, and the rest of itself kind of works itself out. But, but I pick and choose too often. Instead of saying, God, I, I want you, I need you, come and show me how to live this life. May, may, may I trust you and believe you. May I believe the gospel is sufficient for my life that I need not chase any other thing. And that's his imploring that Peter gives, I think, to the people as they listen. So let's continue on with point three. The gospel is empowering for all. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them to not speak or not teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, I've already talked a little bit about how the recoil of unbelief is going to be persecution. It's let me shut that down, okay? And so, and we'll, again, we'll revisit this more and more as the persecution ramps up throughout the book of Acts. But I believe the gospel is empowering for all. And, and let, me just, let me just give this to you. Now, I want you to think for a moment who they're talking to, right? Who, who, who are they engaged with right now? Now, I love this line, that as the high priest, these are the religious of the day, the smartest guys, the guys that know their Bible way better than anyone in the room. I guarantee, even Mark, wherever you're at, better than you, bro, okay? Wherever you're at. Oh, you're at, hey, man. <laughs> these guys know their Bibles. They know their Torah. They know their Old Testament. They know what it says. They know what it means. And they're saying, they look upon Peter and John like, these guys, why, are, why do they have any authority? They don't deserve to have any authority. I, I'm the one who's poured over these things. I'm the one in this position. I'm the one who has uh, been given this title so I can be the one to shape the people. Who is this guy, that these uneducated men, that they would have the right to preach this type of stuff? Now, confronted with the reality of they just saw a person healed, they're just like, well, I don't know what to do with that either. So again, they just recoil to persecution. But as we think through this crowd, I want you then to think back to Acts chapter 2. And if you were with us and you heard this text, great. If not, I'll just reiterate. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls upon the people of God. And they begin to speak in tongues Right? Languages that, that only people from those. And who begins to converge on the area? I'll read the verse from Acts 1.11. You had Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And you had all of these people gathering in the temple courts. Acts chapter 2, sorry. Gathering around these people to hear what in the world is going on now. And these uneducated men, they turn and they preach to probably some more common folk. 
Not the religious spiritual elite, not necessarily the guys who just knew everything, not the ones that were the most studied. And so when I looked at this text, I began to think, man, the gospel is empowering for all, meaning this, it does not matter who you are, what you've done, what you've studied. If God wants to speak, he will speak. And he will call you to speak to people you don't think you deserve the counsel of. Like sometimes he's going to place you in front of people who are like, man, I have no business getting into this conversation with this scholar. But what you have is what they don't have, and it's the resurrected presence of God in your heart. Do you and I believe that? I truly believe that whoever is in here, if you're a believer, God has put his presence inside of you. And he has equipped you and empowered you to preach the gospel to the world. He did not just say, hey, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and uh, you're going to fail. No. He said, guess what? You're going to go, and I'm going to put myself in you so that when you speak, you will speak with authority and power. And the world will have to listen. So then it comes up, will we speak? Or will we be silent? And I love, as James has been kind of playing, I don't even know what you call it, but like a mini song after a song that he keeps doing, and it's this, I will not be silent anymore, you know? And I, and I love that, because I think it's a chorus that I know in my own soul I have to keep saying, because normally what I'm hearing in my head is, be quiet, don't say anything, don't bug anyone, don't, don't rock the boat, just be cordial, let everyone know you're cool. I will not be silent anymore. Because the Spirit of God has so come upon me that I need to preach the word to the world. The, the prophet Jeremiah, he has this beautiful, I mean like over and over and over throughout the book of Jeremiah, he, he just uh, professes and says, man, this is what the Lord is saying, pay attention, pay attention. And in this incredible verse in, in, in Jeremiah chapter 20, he says, the word is like a fire shut up in my bones. If I try and hold it in, indeed I cannot. And I'm like, dang, dude, I want that. Like, I want the word of God to be like, it's a no, like I'm scratching at my skin that the word would come out. And I'm praying for that. And the reality is, is that in God's presence, it's already there. I just haven't really, like, taken advantage of his presence in my life. God has empowered his people to preach the gospel to the world, not because you're gifted or eloquent, not because you're attractive, not because you're funny. He's equipped you because he gave you him. And that's it. And so if you're out there and you're like, man, I don't know what my co I can't talk to my coworkers. I can't talk to this person. I can't do this. I can't live this way. I can't be. That's just, that's just wrong. It's just wrong. You can't. And this is good news for us again. Let's wrap up verse 19, point four. The gospel demands a response. Oh, and before we move on, credit to Gary Fox in our conversation for a lot of that. Thank you, buddy. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And when we had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Which is just a funny verse. Like if he was 39, this is not shocking. Oh, 39? Oh yeah, that happens. Don't worry. But over 40, you say? 
The gospel demands a response. Now, these type of moments, they're not new for the early church. Uh, They're not new, sorry, for the people of God. Throughout all of your scripture, there's constantly these moments where God's like, hey man, who are you going to choose, right? Or more importantly, people of this world, kings and principalities of this world have gone to the people of God and say, who do you side with? What are you going to do? common story that gets brought up often in this moment, which I think is important, is from Daniel chapter 3 in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, the story is King Nebuchadnezzar was like, hey, I need people to worship me. You need to worship me. And these three guys, God-fearing men, said, no, we're not going to do that. And so King Nebuchadnezzar brings them in and says, hey, you need to, you need to dial this in, man. You need to figure this out. Otherwise, it's going to be bad for you. Okay? And so they say, no, because we listen to God. We don't listen to men. So they're thrown into the fiery furnace, okay? Maybe some of you know the story. And they're in there, and King Nebuchadnezzar walks over, and he looks. I'm guessing there was like some type of glass hole or something. And he looks in, and who's in there? But not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but also God's presence is in there with them as well. Four figures. And I think of that story, and I think of what we know about our text right now, that the only reason that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, you know what, we follow God and not man is because of the presence of God with them. And so now the gospel demands a response out of you and out of I, and I guarantee you, you will respond, man, please, as often as you'd like if you do not believe you have the presence of God with you. If we don't believe the gospel, that God gave his life up and is now with us, empowering us, shaping us, molding us, that the spirit lives inside of you and I, man, we will choose man over and over and over. Who will you listen to? Gospel demands a response. So here in our text, the high priests come before Peter and John. They're like, listen up, guys. Hey, you need to knock it off. Okay, we don't like what you're doing. You need to be quiet. You need to shut this down. And they say to him, much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the people of old, hey, man, I'm listening to God, not you. Now, this this is a difficult thing in our culture. Because we live in an increasingly pluralistic culture with wildly different views. And that is not the way it's always been. Now, I'm not the guy that's going to tell you, because I don't think it's true, that this is a Christian nation or was a Christian nation. There, there were things, but I'll say this. Okay, hear me. That value system that comes from Christianity surely shaped the morality of this country for a long time. And it's not anymore. Okay? I've shared this story before. I'll share it again because I think it's that important. There's a great book called The Passion of the Western Mind. Richard Tarnas, atheist, who speaks to this reality and says, the reason why the Western culture has seen flourishing is because they've obeyed and lived by the morality that the gospel presents. This is an atheist. He doesn't believe the gospel, but he acknowledges that the Western culture has been so shaped by the gospel story that its morality has come from that, and that has caused its flourishing. Now, we don't live in that culture anymore. That's just obvious. You look upon our world, the gospel does not shape the morality of our nation predominantly. So this means that the question of who are you going to choose to listen to and follow and speak of and teach about and pursue and proclaim to this world will get increasingly more difficult as it will for the church. And so I'm asking you to be proactive 
I'm asking my own heart to be proactive and say, what will I answer? Because honestly, I haven't had a lot of moments in my life where I've had to say, oh, well, I'm going Jesus instead of, instead of man. But I think those moments are coming. I think they're coming more and more, okay? And I'm just asking us to be a proactive people that begin to ask this question now instead of waiting for when we have to react in the moment to say, oh, I guess I'll probably choose God. And all of this only makes sense if the gospel is true. Otherwise, hear me, we're just jerks. That's just, that's just true. If Jesus didn't come live a perfect life, die the death I deserve to die and raise on the third day to give new life, not just to me, but to all of the world, then I'm just a jerk for calling people to this thing. I, I mean, I get that. And that's the way a lot of people view it. They're like, leave me alone. I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, I don't know. <laughs> We're just jerks. But if this is true, if Jesus really did this, I'm not jerks. We're so obedient disciples of Jesus. And that's what you and I are called to be if you're here and you're a Christian. So preach the gospel to yourself frequently. Remind yourself daily that it's true, it's what he has done, and it shapes us and empowers us to go. And I'm going to say this, if you're here and, and you're not a Christian, and, and there's all, listen, don't feel weird, there's always a good handful of you here, thanks for being here. I know it's weird to come into a situation where you're probably the minority and you got people screaming up here and all that stuff. I just want you to know, man, you are so incredibly loved, and you are pursued by Jesus, and I know this because he came and died for you. And so he wants you, that stuff you're clamoring for, it's him. You might not see it right now. I pray you see it in 10 seconds. If not in 10 seconds, in 20. If not in 20, in a minute, five minutes, 10. What I pray that the Lord would come and just remind you of how much he has pursued you and wants you and is just saying, call on the name of Jesus because it's the only name to be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace this morning, and it is incredible. God, I just acknowledge my own, I don't know, my own just weakness and lack uh, in the midst of my own pride and over-assumption in my capability. God, and acknowledge your goodness and your grace, God, that comes in even in the midst of all that just foolishness, God, and reminds me that you are in control and you're good and you're faithful. And God, you have come after my hearts and the hearts of mankind. You've, and not even just the hearts, God, you've come back for all of your creation. And Jesus, we thank you for what you did. We thank you that you pursued us and died for us and rose for us. And would you get every ounce of the glory for that work? God, I pray your blessing over our time now as we Seek your face and seek to be shaped by you and by others. Heavenly Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.